Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiya, this is Lauren Zayax back with a Phoenix Concussion Recovery and Concussion Talk podcast. Um, I'm here with Nick Mercer and we have Katie Mitchell on the line as well. And she's going to be talking a lot about her research and her PhD program. And uh, welcome to the this version of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks uh, so much for having me. <laughs> I was, I was, I was butted in for one second. This is Nick. I was butted in for one second about this because we have a Head to Health as a sponsor. And uh, Head to Health, so Concussion Talk Podcast is brought to you by Head to Health. And it's uh, Head to Health Gaps to Concussion Care through simple, powerful technology. Powerful technology. Join organizations like Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University. And Volleyball Canada, who rely on Hedge Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HedgeHealth.com for more. So HedgeHealth.com. So, and uh, now that was my sponsor. And uh, so, thank you again so much to Hedge Health, HedgeHealth Health for sponsorship. And I'll let now I'll let Lauren and Katie talk about start, talk about physical therapy, vision, distillery therapy, and AT and a fact therapy. I don't train whatever. So go for it. <laughs> well, Katie, why don't you brief us on what you're working on for your PhD candidacy? Um, yeah, so right now I'm just kind of entering my fourth year at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. I'm in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education. And um, right, we've kind of evolved over the last couple of years with my research, um, as I mentioned a bit before. Um, and we originally started looking at kind of the return to sport protocol and sort of the latter phases of that. Um, and particularly with, uh, you know, asymptomatic athletes, kind of looking at things of how we could actually determine if an athlete is safe for return to sport after they're um, done reporting any symptoms. So um, a lot of the time the assessment was based on that. And so uh, a lot more research has come out recently to say that, you know, 
deficits may linger beyond the resolution of symptoms. And so we wanted to investigate that. And my lab focuses on kind of motor control and balance. And obviously, like the sensory systems that encompass that. So vision, vestibular and somatosensory systems. And uh, yeah, so over the years, we've kind of evolved from doing different balance paradigms with visual motor tasks kind of combined with that. Um, and I spoke on this podcast previously with Nick about our uh, previous study that we did with youth hockey players. And um, we, be- we started to find deficits in athletes that uh, had previous concussion, even though they had returned to sport. Um, and it was more so with this kind of like anticipatory responses. You know, they were a little bit more conservative in how they performed uh, some of the tasks that we uh, assessed them with. And so it really started to kind of filter down to uh, – the visual and vestibular components of doing those things. And so recently we've started collaborating with the University of Waterloo uh, School of Optometry and Vision Science with Dr. Christine Dalton. And we've taken her dynamic visual acuity paradigm and we've started to uh, test it in different ways. So her previous research has looked at athletes and non-athletes and video gamers and she her uh, master's student uh, discovered that athletes performed better than other of those two groups at very high speed. So you think of it being more of like a sport-specific kind of speed uh, of a tracking a moving target, basically and be able to recognize a moving target. And uh, so they did that all in seated. And like I said, our lab is mainly about balance and motor control. So we thought, okay, well, what are the components of sport that need to be included here? And so even just standing upright um, and also getting some movement. So we threw them on a treadmill and uh, have them doing this test now, uh, like kind of at lower speeds and higher speeds, sort of playing with different heart rates um, to see how athletes respond. And so it's been really interesting so far starting that study. Um, I've had rugby players mostly so far, and we're hoping to include ice hockey players. And uh, just kind of those both sports are interdependent and they have a lot of lateral movement um, and like kind of head on a swivel mechanism. So uh, fairly similar demands. So uh, versus interceptive sports like baseball or something. So, um, yeah, we've started investigating that. Um, And basically, like I said, it's to start assessing athletes in sport specific ways to meet the demands of their sport. So we're not just testing them in static. We're kind of breaking down those silos of concussion Uh, clinical domains and sort of combining things together for a more rigorous assessment so in a nutshell that's kind of what (laughs) what I'm working on. Well that's really interesting because it's nice to hear the academic portion of the world is looking at similar things that we're seeing in the clinic so when we're combining vision and vestibular therapy in the clinic usually at a lower level um, because by the time they're ready to return to sport, they've, they've typically transitioned back to their athletic trainer and they're back incorporating their vision exercises into their sport-specific training. But you'll see such a big difference between doing vision therapy seated in a chair, which is the traditional world of vision therapy, and then adding in balance or adding in dual tasking, adding in a vestibular component, um, having them move and do eye exercise at the same time. And, and it's fascinating right now because In the world of physical therapy, at least in the U.S., when we talk about vision therapy, we talk about it as a component of vestibular therapy. So they're using vision to challenge the vestibular system. And so my big push has been getting people to appreciate them as separate systems that have to integrate together. So so I love that you guys are working with that optometry group because they would specialize in vision therapy in the traditional sense of kids with developmental delay and things like that. And then 
infiltrating that into our principles that we're looking into from vestibular rehab component. So it, it's really cool to see the academics uh, matching up with what we're seeing in clinical practice, because in clinical practice, as you know, since you also work in the clinical setting, it's, it's hard. I mean, I've got four research projects in a variety of stages, but it's really hard to do good clinical research work um, and also treat your patients at the same time. So I like this lab-based based work that you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's where that's where I'm kind of unique as a PhD, um, and I'm bringing those two worlds together, and that's always been my goal of translating the knowledge of, because, you know, you do these really, like, basic science studies, and, you know, they maybe find something cool, or maybe the equipment that we use is, you know, well beyond the budget of a private practice that can afford to use the same things. And so I've always been... Um, an advocate for doing research that can be translated almost immediately, um, or even just some of the strategies that we use. Like we also use um, screenings be- before we do these tasks. So like we do break it down, like you said, into kind of the individual components before we just throw them into a more complex task. So you know we do screen like static visual acuity, we screen uh, vestibular, and we screen ocular motor. Um, kind of everything, even like up to basically all the way through the VOMS for the vestibular motor screen. Um, we use that. And then uh, like I always make sure that people can do the task before we have them doing it. So there's one study that we have with, you know, just athletes and um, looking at athletes and non-athletes. So that is actually um, another component of, you know, not just assessing all those sensory systems, but looking at level of experience and if that affects how those systems um, operate. So maybe an athlete has, you know, a more superior visual perceptual system. So the processing of information is actually more efficient in an athlete exposed to high paced environments with a lot of dynamic motion versus someone who isn't. Maybe they're in an office and the level of, you know, exposure is a lot lower. Um, so maybe they don't have as, um, like I said, superior skills. So when you have an athlete versus a non-athlete or somewhere in between of that spectrum, you know, what level should they actually be achieving before they can be cleared? So um, that's the other side of it. And we're also looking at age and development. So the development of those processing skills and kind of the efficiency of those neural pathways, is it different for an adolescent who's an elite athlete versus an adolescent who's not? Can training kind of enhance those visual processing skills and vestibular sort of system because we know that those improve throughout adolescence, um, but does sport kind of augment that? And so when we're returning someone from returning to play from concussion, like should a, you know, a kid who's playing competitive hockey be closer to an adult um, than say the regular adolescent. So that's kind of the other two factors that we're investigating as well. Yeah. Cause you bring up an interesting point. There's so much funding right now in the research for, you know, this return to sport of this high level athlete, but what about, you know, the weekend warrior, like my 52 year old male patient who wants to get back to skiing on the weekends and you have to make such a different decision because you know, they're not going to have, well, I live in park city. So everybody is an elite athlete here, but the, the, the average person isn't going to have that skill set that a 18 year old athlete would have, right. That sort of you yeah. use it, you lose it sort of uh, mentality. And so it'd be really cool to have cutoff scores or goal numbers as you guys are developing your research where you could talk about like, A, in this age group, this sport, but what about this whole other population of people, the majority of the population of humans who are going to have a head injury, 
where do they fit into the spectrum? What needs do they have for driving a car? What needs do they have for going to the grocery store? What needs do they have, you know, um, for playing pickup basketball with their buddies and trying not to tear their ACL on top <laughs> on top of coming back from a concussion? So it's, it's really interesting, like, all the areas that this research can go to. And I, I love the idea of trying to broaden that spectrum of the age groups. And does this high school hockey player have the same needs as this professional hockey player sort of idea? Yeah, because there's been a lot of literature coming out now that there's almost like a like a sensory motor reserve. <laughs> and so when an NHL player has a concussion and they're performing at 50%, is their 50% someone else's 90%? Mm-hmm. So could they actually pass some of the tests that we do um, you know, subjectively or even some you know, more less robust objective tests? can they just kind of go through those and look relatively normal? Because, yeah. you know, should we be testing them more and making their heart rates up while we're actually doing these things? And clinicians are starting to do this. We just don't have literature to, like, support mm-hmm. anything. <laughs> so I kind of want to, like, I've been seeing it happen. I think it's really cool. But we want to also, like you said, bring in these normative values um, to say, like, you know, if you're doing that in clinic, like, you know, how does this apply to the population you're working with? Do you know that, like, is an adolescent capable of doing what you're even testing them with? <laughs> so you or should proving, be... proving need with insurance, right? So if I've got this mm-hmm. 52-year-old skier versus a 52-year-old who's sedentary, maybe I should get yeah. two extra insurance paid visits because his needs for dynamic visual acuity are X compared to, you know, you can't just give me four visits or you can't just give me six <laughs> visits because that's the reality yeah. of, you know, when I worked in sports, I could do whatever I wanted all day and we could see people every single day and, and, and you had an unlimited amount of resources. But now that you're in the real world, it's like, okay, well, Blue Cross Blue Shield's going to give me six and then I have to fill out their forms to reapply for more visits. But none of their forms actually are at all reflective of the therapy that I'm even doing in the clinic. And then you end up with a peer-to-peer review. And so having the research numbers from these labs will Jesus. really help us. <laughs> Somebody's having fun over there. Is, is it Gerda? Can you those your dogs or those? Uh... Oh, can you hear him? Oh. Okay. <laughs> I know my head some, look, me and Lauren's dogs. Lauren, you both follow the dogs. Oh, sorry to interrupt there, but. Uh, um, I think you saw someone crossing the street, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, He's on uh, the terrorist she... watch group. <laughs> <laughs> the neighborhood watch. for you, Katie, because you mentioned, um, you were talking about the equipment and how like, sometimes it's not that reasonable in the clinic. And so it's really, when I'm reading all of the research, at least that's coming out of the U.S., they talk a lot about the VR systems, right, the headsets, because they're more affordable. But with patients have a convergence insufficiency, it's not really realistic for them to use the VR. So then there's other research on uh, those. I can't remember what they're called now, but for the vestibular habituation videos where they have the three screens. And so you're in that virtual surround. So it's looking at some of those for the clinic and they're, I don't know, $100,000. And so, yeah. so now we, we've got a, a projector <laughs> and we, I have swim goggles and I block the sides of their swim goggles. Oh, Yeah equivalent to some vestibular goggles that would be three or five hundred bucks and so we're able to replicate um so we we try but it would be really cool if the researchers could make it a little bit easier on us out there in the real world that's like i said one of the goals of mine is to actually make things feasible and and uh you're like those caves i think you're talking about the big like projection cave and like i know like the vertex one is 
probably like 70 something plus thousand dollars um and hospitals are using them with like treadmills and things for people with vestibular issues and it's super cool but like at the hospital system they can afford that but really the you know i'm focused more on like a private practice to uh person being able to use these things um and the original study i did with the uh hockey players was with a fit light system and uh, a Nintendo Wii board, actually. Oh. So we, we coded a, a program to analyze the force as a force plate, um, although they stopped making Nintendo Wii boards. Like, they don't manufacture them anymore. So that was kind of like, okay, well, what else? But I do know in the industry, like, for force plates, um, there are clinical force plates that are a little more reasonable. They're still, like, a couple thousand dollars. But um, between, uh, I think it's, like, uh, the B-Tracks is one that um, I know the... Uh, creator of that and then like Burtec is a little bit more but even those force plates are becoming more popular Mm -hmm. and they come with like programs that analyze the data so you don't have to actually make your own code to figure out how to you know analyze all this data you get out of it so it's actually just like spitting out a number Um, and so they're doing more research with those because I find that like especially with balance um, and that's such a big part of this tubular stuff because every time you're standing you're engaging vestibular system because that extensor um, mechanism with the lateral vestibular spinal tract becomes activated. So people forget about that part of vestibular, that just getting someone standing engages their vestibular system regardless if you're moving their head or not. So um, I find that we've we've found some, we've been able to tease out a lot of differences with just a force plate. And so I'd love to be able to implement that in my own practice um, and be analyzing balance more objectively. Um, and again, with vestibular, so adding in like, you know, there's like the cobalt where they add like head turns and standing and different things. And you can, you can analyze that on a force plate. And like those things are um, shown to be different. Um, you know, there are other feasible tests, like, you know, there's like their tandem gate, uh, different things like that. But a lot of it's like us getting creative in the clinic, like you said, like making up things, uh, you know, on the fly and sort of coming up with creative ways to do it without having to spend money on that expensive tech. And, uh, we are more fortunate in the lab to have it, but I don't necessarily have it with me in clinic and that's kind of the disconnect. So, um, I think the future of therapy and, you know, both the U S and Canada, you're starting to see more people pick up that objective tech to be able to really look at that. Because when you get a parent at the end of the day saying, well, how do you know their balance is any different? Like you just looked at them <laughs> when you do like the the best test or something. Right. And yeah, yeah. It's, it used to be in all the, what is the best test? Balance. Um, it's the balance error scoring system. So it's on the scat five as the quick screen of balance, but really it's not shown to be too reliable beyond kind of like 72 hours post concussion. So a lot of clinicians rely on that though, as their, uh, test for follow-ups and, you know, recovery and everything. Mm-hmm. It's really not meant for that. So, um, that for me, was like one of the main things I really wanted to, fill the gap of like the advanced balance assessment beyond what we can do with the best. Um, and that still remains to be a fairly big gap in the research today. So it is fascinating how much the patients, even those who are a little deeper in their concussion, right, where they're having trouble multitasking or even paying attention at school or work, how much the data really will drive their buy-in to your session. So um, we were able to get, we, we had a force plate for a while. It wasn't working. We got it up and working again when I, when I joined my practice and it's been really Sorry, cool to just, do the... What is a, what is a force plate measure? 
it measures, well, it depends on the force plate. Um, mine measures the amount of sway, and it's better at lateral sway. So I can do a modified best on mine, but the problem is it doesn't do as good of a job as it does uh, with the modified cat sim, which is a bigger piece of foam, and it's a wider base of stance. So it's not as good for a high-level athlete. It's not going to pick up on deficits on them. So it, the challenges with things like these tech is that you have to use the test that the tech is made for. And so I will do both tests. Um, with my patients, I just warn the patient ahead of time, okay, we want to get the data for the higher level tests, but just so that you know, the force plate isn't as well designed for this one. So we're going to have to sort of modify the way that we look at it. But what's really interesting with the cat sib, it, which is um, a, ver a variety of different conditions. So they have their eyes open and their eyes closed. They're in a, on a firm surface like the flat ground or the force plate, or they're on this big thick piece of foam. And you're able to look at the difference in their postural sway in a variety of different conditions. And so they should have the most sway with their eyes closed on the large piece of foam in the vestibular condition. But in a person who has a head injury or in vestibular rehab, someone with other types of um, vestibular deficits, you're actually going to see a really strong visual dependence. So they'll have a disproportionate amount of sway on the firm surface with their eyes closed than on the foam surface with their eyes closed. And so even when the patient thinks they did a phenomenal job on the test, when you pull up the charts and you show it to them, and you're like, okay, well, you're in the green, but look at how disproportionate the amount of sway you had on this firm surface. This is why we still want to be working on these things. And it's fascinating. I could give them the exact same lecture on firm ground with a subjective test. And they're like, man, I'm going back to sport anyway. I'm going to ignore you. And then you show them this chart that they really don't even know how to read. And they're like, oh, okay, I understand now why I should not be playing my soccer match this weekend kind of thing. So it, it's been really cool to be able to use some of those tools in clinical practice. And the buy-in that you get from the patient is just so much more sound, even if, they, they, even if you're having the exact same conversation you would have had without the tech. Do you think that's sorry? I'm just interrupting here. But do you think do you think that's more to do with just the way we understand the way we understand balance and we think we understand ourselves? We don't think anyone else, anyone else can understand us the way, say like a, like a mechanical process, like a chart or a, some computer system can understand us better than we think anyone else. Like I don't think, like for example, like I wouldn't think you, Lauren, you Lauren, or Katie could understand me as well as a computer could. I think right. that's a problem. I, I, that I think that's a problem for physiotherapists and for athletic trainers in general. From concussions. Yeah, people are. I think people are more intelligent, even if they haven't gone to all the school that that we have, than, than we give them credit for. And I think that people, especially in the world of concussion, they that they, they still know that we don't know as much as we want to know. And so I think that the human nature, especially of an athlete, where let's say they're a professional athlete, their money is on the line, their career is on the line, their their brand is on the line, they're going to look for any little piece of doubt that they can find to try to say, well, maybe you don't know, or you can't yeah. prove that it's dangerous, so I want to go back. And I think that the objective piece takes that out of the equation. Like, okay, okay. I, I respect Good. your decision, I respect how you feel, but let me show you what the data says, and right. let me show you, this is why Katie's research is so important when you are talking about high-level athletes. Okay, these people at this university in Canada, we're able to show at this age for this sport, you should have this and you are here instead. And that is objectively why you're not safe. And I think that the athletic mind or the weekend warrior mind of people who don't want to be told what to do, or they feel like we don't really have all the answers. So who are we to tell them that we should hold them back? The objective piece is what bridges that gap for them. And it, and it makes it irrefutable 
um, that you're making the right call for that patient. And when you educate them the right way, you don't have to be the bad guy. Like, I don't like saying no to the patient. What I like to do is show them the evidence, ask them questions, and lead them to making the right decision on their own. Like, hey, you're really struggling on that wobble board there. Do you really feel like you're going to be able to edge your skis the right way in low light? Like, let's try closing your eyes and see how you feel. Obviously, they're going to do worse with their eyes closed, but you just try to show them and lead them to the right decision on their own, and you'll get a better buy-in. You'll have a more um, compliant patient, and they'll get better faster, lower re-injury risk, things like that. Yeah, so I, I completely agree, and that's that's where, like, I think the limitation that you're talking about, Nick, of, like, us, like, therapists versus a piece of technology is that it is something we cannot see with the human eye. So um, the force plate is, like, an average, uh, it creates an average point. Like, say, if you have two feet on a force plate, there'll be, like, one cumulative point that will be, like, your average weight on that board. So as you sway around and move, like, you'll get a bit of displacement of that little point, and it'll start to, like, we have plots that look like that, and there's just, like, a trace kind of around, and it, it, it'll usually be a lot wider with someone who's got poor balance if they're just standing still. And someone who's got a better balance, or maybe they're more conservative and actually being really tense, they'll actually have less excursion of that little dot between their feet. Great. So that's why it's something we can't actually view with our human eye. It's not possible. But there's been studies even out of my lab, like one of the biggest ones was in, uh, I think, 2014. Uh, my colleague, Kelly Powers, is now also a physiotherapist. Um, she uh, published a study with my advisor about, uh, they basically looked at football players um, when they were symptomatic and then when they returned to sport. And they just put them on, they still had them stand on the force plate and eyes open, eyes closed, just two feet. And they were able to, compared to, sorry, they compared them to control teammates without concussion. And at both time points, they were had worse balance. Even though they were like symptom free and cleared for return to sport, they weren't as they weren't similar to their counterparts that hadn't had a concussion. So there is something to say about this sort of um, physiological recovery versus clinical recovery of symptoms. Right. That things exist like in the brain that aren't necessarily being you're not aware of it as if the person. Um, but for the demands of a sport or even like a weekend activity um, or even an office environment, a classroom, some of those things uh, you may not be performing as well in. And it could cause things like fatigue and different things that um, lead to, especially in sport, uh, there's more research coming out on this that uh, like a subsequent injury risk is actually elevated for athletes. Um, and they are attributing it to this sort of sensory motor deficit. Um, and that was one of the big things that drove my PhD is this, uh, there was a study in 2015 by Cross and colleagues in the UK with uh, rugby players. And it was, I think they showed a 60% increase of subsequent injury upon return to sport compared to athletes with orthopedic injuries. Um, it was something like 60 days like on the median. And it was, uh, it was pretty astounding. And they, they're like, we don't know why this is happening. But when they looked at the return to play protocol, it was like they weren't spending enough time in those asymptomatic phases because the way we graduate players to the next phase is based on symptoms. And so there was no objective measure in between, like, going from sport-specific, like, drills into a, you know, a non-contact practice. There's nothing there other than sort of subjective measures. And I think that's where the biggest changes need to be made is in those uh, – latter phases if they're only spending one day in each and they're just like oh i'm symptom free i'm great do we know that they're 
you know, neural processing and everything has recovered fully for them to go back to the demands of a sport. And that's where it really, um, that's where really my questions, because I, I got like really, really frustrated with not being able to test that stuff myself <laughs> with just my, you know, my own obje- uh, subjective assessment. So, you know, five, 10 years ago, we didn't have any tech really at all to, to look at these things. So this is where it's a really interesting time that it, as all this is emerging, we've got all these opportunities. So do you know what would be a fascinating study, just thinking about um, what you're talking about? So when, when I have trouble negotiating, I'll call it with a patient, about their return to sports status, I'll quote that study a lot. Like, you're 60% more likely to have a lower extremity injury in the same season. Like, these are the reasons why we have to go at this pace. But it would be really fascinating for a study to be done, especially in a lab-type environment where you can collect all the data, about the time loss versus time to return. So... An athlete who returns in that typical 14 days, how many t- how many days in each phase do they need to spend for that sensory neural processing versus an athlete who has a more severe injury who, who fits in that protracted recovery more than three weeks, typically somewhere between three and six months, getting that athlete back to sport, what's the effects of deconditioning, how long do they need in each of those phases, and, and the clinical way that I try to describe it to a patient is, if you, if you tore your ACL, we know it takes, we're returning people now in about nine months, but we know it takes a full 18 to get you back to normal. So we wouldn't take you off of six weeks on crutches and let you go right back into running, right? <laughs> we would build strength and we would build this and we would do that. And we know it takes six to eight weeks to build muscle fiber strength and, and things of that nature. So I try to educate them, like, it's not realistic that you're going to be cleared and be functioning in sport because that's not how the human body and deconditioning even works. But it would be really cool to have numbers to put to that. Like, this is how long the average person who was symptomatic for a month took. This is how long the average person who's symptomatic for three months took in each of those stages. And I'm sure you could clinically reason through. It would be six to eight weeks for strength, and then you should have this level of single leg strength for plyos and stuff like that. But it, it would be really fascinating to be able to collect the actual sensory motor data on it. So. Just a little thought. Just more work for you to do. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's. I feel like I'm making this little tiny dent. Like even in the visual world, I'm looking at one component, right? So yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's a big problem is that, like I said, once symptoms are clear, though, they really push. Like mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we're going to practice. All right, you had a great practice. That must be enough for you to return to sport. Like it's like one practice, really. Like when you go into preseason, do you only have like one practice and then you have your first game? Like that to me is is common sense. And I always compare it back, like exactly like you said, like with an orthopedic injury of some sort. I'm like, you know, do we have all these timelines set for like ankle sprains and ACL and whatever, but like our brain is so much more complex. It controls all those joints. So how do we like, you know, just don't carry that the same weight as an orthopedic injury. It blows my mind sometimes. And that's where I'd, I'd see players go back and be like, I have nothing to say that this player is unsafe to return or maybe they're not ready but I can, I can give nothing to the coach, like concrete data or information to, yeah. to disprove it. And so that really bothered me because I, I knew deep down there was something going on in this. Like I'm saying, like 10 plus years ago and, and in sports where it is contact and there's a lot of demand or high speeds like skiing and stuff, like there's so much, even mountain biking, different things I've seen different athletes. And it's not always interdependent, but it's anything with high velocity that uh, requires a really high level of processing should be treated in the same way of like particularly with that protracted recovery because 
there are those people who do recover quickly and you know I've got variability in my data to say that some people performed great and some it was the other people that didn't perform and that's where the averages get a little bit skewed and but it's cool to see that for me variability is great because it means that some people are recovering and there's yeah. a percentage of people who aren't um, you know it would take a really big project to look at that I think it would be you know a multi-center type thing would really have to push that type of study um, but so much is focused on the like prevention side that I would love to see more on the rehab side and I'm lucky that, like, in even my province, like, there's so many people, like, at Toronto Rehab and stuff that are working on, um, you know, like, the extra, implementing exercise earlier and all this stuff that we've really discovered the last year that was so fantastic. Um, but we're, like, introducing these ideas, and now we have to look at them in a longitudinal way and, you know, yeah. start to look at how can we combine sensory integration with exercise? How can we do these things together? Because that is how things come together in a sport. And so building the, you know, more literature on that is going to help, but it takes time. And I, I think for me, I'm, I'm kind of impatient as an academic. <laughs> I know as a clinician that I want to start doing some of these things that I am seeing and, and that's fine. Like if I love knowledge translation and I, I, I do agree with some people that it takes too long sometimes to get the research out and implementing it. Um, and some, you know, clinicians are already moving ahead and I think it's so innovative and so cool. Um, and it's, I think that in private practices, we could do a better job of like actually tracking our patients recovering. You said it's hard to do that <laughs> when you're trying to run a business or operate as a clinician. And, uh, some clinics are starting that they're starting to like track the recovery of their patients and really like, you know, in a standard way of how they're implementing the care, like how people are responding to it and the recovery times. And so, more of that, I think, is helpful to see from, like, a stat standpoint rather than just our, like, you know, lab-based studies. Um, yeah. I think stuff that's actually in the field of, you know, in the clinic would be more beneficial to see um, of how practices are working together and collaborative care is working together to get these uh, people back. So, um, yeah, like I said, like, we're just, like, at the tip of the iceberg <laughs> right now, and there's so much more. <laughs> Um, the more I do, like, I just feel like there's so much more I don't know. So Isn't that the horrible part? Like, the more you do it's... or try, the more the onion peels back and you're like, darn it, now I got to look yeah, at all this other stuff. Yeah, you discover a whole other problem. And, yeah, so that's exactly how I feel most days. Because then I, even when I start a new project, I'm just like, I see things and I'm like, oh, well, we could have done this too. And, you know, yeah. we're even looking into other types of visual, like, perceptual training, like multiple object tracking and, um, different things and like applying these sort of different postural uh, conditions to them to you know progress the complexity of it because like I said people are doing it like you're doing it with you know your your uh, goggles and the the VR like projection like that stuff's already happening so um, but understanding like and allowing clinicians to understand why to do it and maybe when it's appropriate and who's it who's it's appropriate for because um, we do have like a pieces, right? Like, when yeah, is it appropriate? And like, <laughs> and, and it's not oh. always about the athlete. And yeah. my stuff right now is just, again, like first time we've really looked at it. So we chose athletes because that's where the differences lie in the first study. And we are looking at just seated and standing with uh, previous concussion and kind of against uh, versus people without. So um, and we're working with accessible learning within our university with that. So that's for like every like student who is experiencing this for them to tolerate a classroom or even just walking down, you know, we have this concourse that's just a, you know, you think of your grocery store, or like mall, it's, it's just like that scenario with all these busy people moving all these different directions. So, um, 
that kind of stuff where it is for everyone is mm -hmm. the goal for future. And uh, the other interesting piece of that is like I work with Parasport as well. And to, to assess balance in a Parasport <laughs> environment is nearly impossible because everybody is a little different. So I'd love to be able to use a test like we're using now or some kind of manipulation of those sensory systems so that when I have a sledge hockey player who's coming back from concussion, I can assess that better for them mm. um, or maybe in a different seated posture with a bit more of a postural demand. So that is like where I would love to take it. And like I said, more of like an assessment for every single person, that we, like, you know, covering all those different subgroups um, and sort of levels of athlete and levels of ability would be awesome so that's hopefully, hopefully <laughs> the direction it goes in so yeah that's the, that's the future the dream right so you've got a lot of work <laughs> you got a lot of work to do girl so, well, I, I, be, before you guys you before you i don't know if you're signing off or not but uh just the back that lot that uh like long, the long the long-term study that uh, like the or through recovery, basically. Do you know any institutions that are doing long-term studies towards how long a concussion, concussion patient needs to truly, truly recover, like bridge yield system? Like, like you're saying, the, the vestibular system needs longer than you know six months to recover, or, or visual system needs that. So, but is there? Do you know of any institution or a group group of people that are doing longer-term studies that are looking the at over? Oh, sorry, Nick. The only group in the U.S. that I know of is that there's that big NCAA DOD Department of Defense study, and they're following athletes and service members um, long term. Again, that's that very unique patient population that gets all of the attention. Um, but that's the only big, massive study, and I I know that study is huge. So there's going to be some really exciting yeah. information long, coming out of that. How long is that? How long has that been going? I, you know, it's been going on for a couple I think, of years. Two years. And I think they published one. the first year results, and then they were going to publish at five years. And I, I apologize. I can't remember what their long-term plans are. I kind of wonder if it's going to keep adapting as they keep finding information and if it will end Probably. when they feel like they found enough but, um, or when they find something they don't want to find. But, <laughs> but uh, as of right now, I know that one of their goals was the five-year mark, if, but I could be wrong on that. But that's what I believe is, is the case. Yeah, that's, I think that's the CARE consortium, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think that's what yeah. they're called. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've I've met some people on that project. There, that's a multi-center, big, huge thing. Huge. Um, it's hard in a PhD to be able to do a big longitudinal study yeah. like that. And I've Obviously. done some stuff where it's, you know, post three to six months or something, and looking at these things. And um, in a lot of the cases, I don't think it's necessarily that people aren't recovering. I just think they're not. Uh, approaching rehab the same ways or maybe they were never they never sought out the appropriate rehab so it's not like they couldn't recover so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that my results are necessarily like really true to um, you know if they had been through a really rigorous recovery program like some of these athletes are just like they finished the requirements whatever with their um, sports team or their like maybe their physician and they followed that return to sport protocol and that was it um, maybe they didn't never had vestibular ocular stuff assessed, um, and that's where I think the problem is. Is like, who like it has to be a really standardized treatment program that these people are on. If it was to be a longitudinal study, um, right. to see that when they are actually being those interventions are happening, because I think the couple of the players that I've had, or say even they're in the club system where there's not really even a consistent therapist at 
with their team and they may not even have sought out a, a care at all for their concussion. They just felt better and they went back. So a lot of that mindset of like, once my symptoms are gone, I'm good. Um, but when you really get testing them, they're like, oh, wow, that actually made me a little bit dizzy. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that was only like 110 beats per minute on your <laughs> VOR test. And that's just like head rotations. So like Nick, if you were to rotate your head back and forth, a, a, a I beat, get dizzy. Um, like say 110, <laughs> you'd get a little bit dizzy. I, I would though, just because I, do, I have double vision. I have double vision, so I know you probably be... shouldn't be playing hockey, Nick. No, remember, <laughs> I don't. So. But in a <laughs> Luckily, who does when they do get dizzy, you can really say like, you know what, that stirred you up. Like, and how are you playing your sport? Because running actually creates a bit of a a bobbing of the head at a frequency of about 120 beats per minute. So um, that kind of wakes them up a little bit and so I think it has to be a super standardized like they're getting the same treatments they're getting everything assessed to make sure all those clinical domains are being addressed throughout the recovery Um, because I think what my findings so far has really just revealed that people aren't getting the appropriate care to recover the systems to make sure that they're functioning well after so that's probably my biggest like critique of that kind of research right now is making sure that they're receiving all the same stuff through a long period of time and then you could really track recovery. Nick, I feel like uh, I feel like we've talked forever. All right. Well, be, I believe it might be time be, to sum this one up. What, well, what it's, does everybody it's, feel? It's your, podcast, rude, it's, <laughs> it's your podcast, but uh, I don't, I don't yeah, before you guys, before you guys, uh, you guys seem to enjoy <laughs> talking to this, and it's great to listen to great to listen to this stuff. It's interesting as well. But uh, <laughs> before you guys do, before I yeah, do start recording. Um, you guys want to tell everybody your Instagram, Twitter, websites, where to find you, at, where to find you and stuff, or to, you know, if you want to give that out. But I assume you do because you don't have a website if you don't want to pull note. But uh, yeah, so go ahead. Katie, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so on Instagram, um, you can find my, my academic stuff and my uh, clinical stuff under Thrive Neurosport. Um, that's all one. Uh, all one word and then also I have a website it's thriveneurosport.ca uh, so that's the Canadian <laughs> handle um, and I'm also on Twitter and I, I have to double check what my Twitter actually is because I can't remember it's a long one I've um, looked at earlier it's, a, it's like uh, yeah it's at Katie Mitch underscore ATPT so <laughs> that's my Twitter <laughs> And uh, I'm Lauren Zayax, and uh, my website is phoenixconcussionrecovery.com. Phoenix, like the bird, concussionrecovery.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at LZConcussion. And uh, my Instagram, which I do a very bad job, except for when Nick tags me and things, is <laughs> Phoenix Concussion Recovery. And so you can reach us there. If you ever have any questions, you can always email us either through Nick um, or through my website, Phoenix Concussion. And uh, I really appreciate uh, this is our first three person podcast for a phoenix uh, podcast so i'm super pumped that we got yeah. to do this that was fun that was really fun yeah Thanks it was great great conversation we'll a, a part two yeah. i'm sure we'll get some questions and then we can bring katie back great <laughs> yeah Thanks. i'd be happy to thank you so much for listening and thank you to head check health for being a sponsor visit headcheckhealth.com to find out more about what they do and please remember to follow Lauren and Katie on Instagram, Twitter, wherever else you can find them. And visit their, their websites at phoenixconcussionrecovery.com, thriveneurosport.ca, 
And please check out my website at concussiontalk.com. And I hope you're listening again next time. Thank you. As always, music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.